The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. The Bible, we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 18. I'm going to read, uh, we're going to read through the chapter as we move through it this morning. Um, I'm going to read the first eight verses just to get us started. We did this last week, and I'd encourage you to consider this for this week. Um, I want to ask us questions as we're moving through the passage, so some sort of interaction while we're talking during the sermon. And then if you have questions, uh, you can shoot that to the text after uh, the number at the bottom of the screen along the way. Happy to engage that after the sermon as best I can. So here we pick up in the life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memory as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by my tent. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to see your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three says of flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds of milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood under the tree while they ate. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these words, we ask what you have for us here. And as you come to visit with us this morning, we pray that you would test our hearts, and as you have graciously brought us into your family and given us your grace, that we would be people that experience and express your grace with a similar generous heart. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to change my introduction this morning to bring up, uh, has anybody seen the show Severance? I've been binge watching this lately. Anybody seen this show? Okay, so I have a fresh audience to introduce to this. This is awesome. Okay, we could take that off because it's going to freak you out if you keep looking at that. By the way, that's the actor from Parks and Rec, Ben. I, I, I was like five episodes in, I'm like, why do I know this guy? I'm like, oh, it's Parks and Rec. Okay, the premise of severance is that you, there's a chip implanted in your brain, and it severs your work-life memories from your personal life memories. So when you go to work, you don't remember anything about your personal life. When you leave work, you remember nothing of your work life. Um, and it's a fascinating show and how that plays out and affects the lives of the characters and what it's like to be on the inside and what it's like to be on the outside and not remember any of those things. The reason I bring that up this morning is because often I think in our own experience of grace and the way we live our lives as Christians, we can often feel like there's a severed relationship between we know God loves us, we know grace, we know what God is like, And yet, often, we feel like the ways we express that in our lives as a totally different person. Like, did you not hear what the Bible said this morning? Did you not hear? 
my fantastic sermon on Sunday or whatever, you know? Did you not hear these things and know them, and yet we act in ways that we often feel like don't reflect that life, the grace that we know in Jesus. What we have in Genesis 18 is effectively a, a, a story in Abraham's life where God comes to test Abraham to see, are you two severed people, so to speak, or are you one whole person that has fully begun to integrate the grace you, that Abraham has experienced from God into his personal life and how he thinks about the people around him. You see, we're right on the heels. Uh, last week we preached, talked through the story of Hagar and how Hagar did not experience, uh, to say the least, grace from Abraham and Sarah and how that relationship and what developed there was an atrocious experience um, under the umbrella of being in the family of God and being under grace. Here we pick up in Abraham's story and we find God coming effectively about 13 years later to test Abraham. And in the midst of all that, the test is simply this. How well do you know this God who's graciously given you life? That's the test that Abraham gets. And we're going to look at it in two parts. The test that Abraham gets helps us to kind of consider this main point for this morning. Cultivate a gracious heart by living by loving God's life among all people, right? This is the call of this passage. God has graciously given Abraham life, and will Abraham not only be aware of that, and we're going to see how he does, show that he's aware of it, but then we're going to show, we're going to look at the scene that follows up on it. Is Abraham aware of God's life among other people, of God's grace towards other people? So, what I want us to do as we work through this passage, I'm going to ask us some questions along the way that, again, if you're able to, I'd love for you to, to kind of just shout out. We're going to talk through Abraham's story, and I want you to kind of consider when we get to Sarah, what's Sarah's experience like? And then as we get to Abraham's testing about how he thinks about other people, what is Abraham thinking about when it comes to other people that don't follow the Lord? So... All right, we're going to pick up here verses 1 to 15. We're going to see how do we cultivate a gracious heart by loving God's life among all people. We're going to see that Abraham calls us to trust God's life-generating promises. All right, I'm going to read um, a little bit here in the beginning of 18 to kind of pick us back up in the story. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre... As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Here's Abraham. Like uh, You'll notice that his life is probably a herdsman of some kind living out in some sort of wilderness. I'm not sure if it's like, I, I honestly don't really know. Is it like dusty, like sand dunes? Or is this like, has anybody ever been to Oklahoma where you're like, it's, that's where my family's from. It's like, it's not the desert, but it's not really like, golf park either, you know, like it's just a lot of land forever and ever. He's sitting out basically in the middle of the day, getting his siesta on, just resting in the midst of his work. Whatever it is that his work is, probably a herder of some kind at this point in his life. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. 
he saw them, ran from the, t- the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your, uh, your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, it's curious, what exactly gives away that these guys are divine beings of some kind or another? It, is it the halo that they have? Like, are they walking around with halos on? I don't know. Um, clearly, there's a way in which Abraham's watching the horizon, blinks, and then suddenly hears who he recognizes as Yahweh, along with two angels, as we see later on in the story. So he says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you might be refreshed yourselves before you pass on. It's interesting. He under-promises and over-delivers, right? He's like, a little morsel of bread and a little bit of some water. And what does he present to them? A gourmet feast. Like, he's like, okay, which is the most tender calf? I've never been involved with slaughtering animals, so I'm not against it, obviously. I love meat in all kinds, shapes and sizes. Um, But I don't know how you, like, walk up to a calf and you're like, oh, this one's good. Oh, no, this one's not quite as tender. This is, like, prime A, prime, you know, whatever it is. Somehow he knows, obviously, he's picking out the best calf. He's getting milk ready for them. He's getting... Um, it would have kind of been like non-bread, like the, there's no time for yeast to develop, so it's like some sort of like morsel bread. It's a feast that he's presenting to these guys who show up out of nowhere, and he does about it goes about it quickly, right? He uh, he goes about making sure that it happens very fast, quick, ran, he hurried. Here we want to pick up in verse nine, and he said to him. Where is your wife, Sarah? And she said, I'm sorry, and he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall be a son. Now, first of all, we need to recognize this is definitely a sign that he's talking to God. Like, this is not something like, I mean, I can think of a few 80s movies where people, like, predict the future, and it does not go well, right? But being able to predict the future is not something that most people do. Uh, certainly being able to assure the future. but So that's why he, if he hadn't picked up quite up until this point, he certainly has a key in now. We're talking to somebody totally different than some random stranger walking through the desert. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Now we know from the next few chapters that Sarah was effectively 89 years old, thereabouts, and Abraham was 99 years old, Right? So it says, now Abraham and Sarah were advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased with Sarah, to be with Sarah. So Sarah is long past, past menopause. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So here we have this kind of like, I'm sure each of us has had some type of awkward hosting experience where you're like, yikes, didn't mean to ask that awkward question. This is like, of all the yikes of hosting, this is like, the ultimate of like basically like, no, like this is the Lord sitting in your house calling the bluff of somebody laughing at something that he's just said. Like, it's just, it, it is, 
a very comedic scene, but then it also drives us into the question, where, what do you guys think Sarah's laughing? I mean, it says here, right, that she's basically laughing about the possibility of having a child in old age. We can understand that, right? As far as I'm aware, I've never heard of an 89-year-old woman having a baby. Not something that I've heard of. But I think there's more going on here. Where do you guys think her head is? What's she thinking about? The story up to this point has been God's made a promise upwards of 25, 30 years ago before this moment. Lots of time in between for that to have been fulfilled. Anybody, any kind of general thoughts of what she, where you think she's at mentally? Oh, kind of like God keeps pushing my face in it? A little. Yeah. yeah. Like you've made this promise, clearly you're not going to fulfill it. Right. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's good. Anybody? She might be just imagining what that would look like. Like, sure. there's no way I can do this. <laughs> this is crazy. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to make any comment on that. <laughs> Anybody? I mean, maybe this is just me. I just think that she's like just kind of given into cynicism, right? It's similar to what you're talking about. Like, not only is it like you keep rubbing my face in this, but like, bro, like, we, there is no way this is possible. We even tried a plan B and you rejected plan B. We got in trouble for that, right? That, that's the whole Hagar thing. That was bad. I think there is, um, there's a bit of a defiance in this. I mean, just imagine the scenario, right? You're talking to the person who is the Lord himself that you know from, from one way or the other. He created all things. And yet even, you have a, even in your old age, you've allowed the circumstances of your life to begin to dictate to God what he can or cannot do. Right? Beginning to kind of play this out. like She's saying, my life circumstances are more definite than God's infinite life-generating power. That's what I, th- I think there's something going on here with this cynicism in, 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 in Sarah's heart. But it's fascinating. We are kind of drawn into this, this question. Do we identify with Abraham in this story or Sarah? In a very real sense, it's been about 13 years since the last scene, Genesis, Genesis 17, 16, that stuff. It's been about 13 years Abraham, over the course of that time, has allowed this story of who God is, God's continued presence with him, to to percolate and to meditate upon that. Sarah has not, evidently. And I'm not saying that like to diminish her place in the story. We can all be one or the other at various points of the day, even. But it is fascinating that Abraham, in a very real sense, has learned his lesson of accepting and being open to this life-generating God who is pursuing him. And Sarah is not. She has, in a certain sense, stayed inside the tent. She has not gone out to God himself. She has not pursued, made herself open to accepting and meditating on who this God is. But you'll notice, even the way we're introduced to Abraham, 
And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Memre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And the whole story that follows that is because Abraham has made himself open to God. He has meditated in one way or the other upon who God is and what God's like. All the stories, even up to this point, right? We're only like six chapters into Abraham's life at this point. There's been a few major points. He's had major encounters along a 30-year period, two or three, with God himself. And yet those were sufficient for him to meditate upon and to be open to his, this life of God pursuing him. So that when God shows up, he responds in trusting who God is. Oh, I've been meditating. I'm not trying to, dem- I hope, what I want to say here is, I'm not trying to diminish the value of meditating on our Bibles. I think that reading through our Bibles is great. We should, every, every Christian should eventually make it a goal in one way or the other to read through their whole Bible. But you have to consider, Abraham does not have a Bible in the story, right? He has a bunch of stories. He has a bunch of, a few encounters. And yet that has been sufficient over a 13-year period to shape his heart to be more like God. God who has given him grace time and time again. Abraham has meditated upon who he is to allow that to shape his life so that he makes space in his life for God. He has space in the middle of the day for him, whatever that was, but it reflects an openness of his heart towards who God is, right? How much more do we then have when it comes for us to have opportunities to make space in our lives for God himself? I, I'm going to go on a bit of a rant that you guys are very familiar with. <laughs> I am very concerned how these devices continue to push out space in our lives for God himself. I'm very concerned for how we allow the, the media around us that we are, we are a continually media-saturated consuming culture and how that, even just the, the physiological dynamics of seeing data, responding to it, regurgitating data, creating data, whatever it is, it pushes out space in our lives to be able to have a moment of quiet rest, just like Abraham here, so that we are just open to who God is and what he has for us. I'm concerned about that for us, and it's something I'd, I've begun to say in my own life to shape how I start my day. So over the course, I've been doing several things to kind of, I feel like, get my life back on track or to get my life under control in some way or the other. So in the, mor- in the mornings over the last, over the summer, I've had a, uh, on our, in our house, I have a chair in the back porch, and I go and sit in it first thing in the morning, and I just watch the birds in my backyard for like 30 minutes to an hour. It's great. I mean, sparrows and finches are not exactly the most exciting birds, but occasionally a cardinal shows up. There's a blue jay in the neighborhood that likes to show up. Put a, we put a bird feeder out there. You know, I'm not, I'm not beneath paying people to come to my house, you know. <laughs> so, but it's, uh, it is a meditation moment for me to, to enact this sort of, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, consider the birds of the, the air, how your Father in heaven cares for them. Jesus' directions for us and how to relate to and understand and be shaped by the Father's heart directly relate to 
Am I allowing there to be space in my life to consider God controls all this stuff, takes care of it, loves those things, and then loves me more than those things. Certainly he can care for me better than he does for those things. That sort of meditative space, being open to who God is, that's kind of been a practice. And now I'm getting anxious, honestly, about the winter. Like, what do I do in the winter? Because, like, I can't, I'm not going to sit in the back porch like that, personally. But 2 Corinthians, I want to draw us to this for a second. 2 Corinthians, if we could put that up here. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why we brought, it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, this is the, pro- we all, I think this is something we consider, but I want us to consider in this context. Abraham did not have these promises, right? Abraham did not have the son of God taking on the, his sin and dying in his place to conquer Satan's sin and death. Abraham did not have the seal of the Holy Spirit upon him to bind him to the heart of God. And yet, we share the same faith that Abraham had when we say, when we look at God and say, he is able to bring life into whatever area we feel like there is death that rules. I'm not saying that this is like name and claim it stuff. That's not what we're talking about. But when we look at our lives, there are often places where we think, this could certainly never change. This relationship that I have, this, these sins that I struggle with, these habits that I have, these mental patterns, whatever it is, this works experience, this can never change. And yet Jesus calls us to himself and says, I have promises that guarantee, that generate new life for you that are always yes. Now that yes is generally not changing of the circumstances. That yes is almost always the reshaping of the character of our hearts to be more like God himself. This is, I think, what what Abraham draws us into. How do we have, how do we have, how do we cultivate a gracious heart like God? We trust in this God and his life-generating promises. All right. We've been talking a lot about the inner stuff. I want to go to the second half of the story. How do we cultivate a gracious heart by loving God's life among all people? Now we're going to hit that all people side of that statement. Right? We've been looking at the inner side of that, a gracious heart. We're going to be looking at how we can pursue God's life-preserving justice. So this is a long story, a long section. What I want to do is I'm just going to read, start us out by looking at verses 16 to 21. So, you have, we'll just pick up back in the story. Back in the story, right, Abraham has served, um, Sarah has mocked, Abraham has trusted, and yet the Lord, his promise, regardless of their, react, their actions, continues to stand, and he gets up, and he goes to walk away. So, here we pick up verse 16. Then the men set out from there. They looked downward towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them and set them on their way. So basically, he kind of gives them the local directions, like go by that rock, go through those trees, not that way, this way. 
The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So here this is basically where we're getting this testing language from. God is saying, look, shall I put this in front of Abraham to see how he responds? He's te- this is an overt section of where he's showing that he's testing. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Again, that justice language. So the Lord might bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is, so, is very grave, I will, cut down to, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So basically what we have here is a story that, that develops where Sodom and Gomorrah, I feel like that language is fairly still common today where we, we recognize that language as being like, these, these are like real big baddies. Like they're really bad folks in the Old Testament. Here's what we're, we're not going to do. I'm not going to do like a big rant on any of that stuff. We're just going to acknowledge that not only were they inhospitable, but they were committing all types of sins and atrocities that are just bad. Like if you get into that chapter, it, it gets really dark very fast. Chapter 19. Sorry, the next chapter. But basically what God is saying is the reputation of their sin has gotten to me and I will not allow this to stand. So I'm going to go and judge them. Abraham, what do you think? So here's, here's the question that Abraham was being posed with, right? You are the father of the nation that will be the grace nation, the nation that is defined by grace. Presumably, if there's evil, there's people who are suffering under evil. So then, Abraham, what do you do when you're faced with evil people committing evil things and with a gracious God who does judge evil? How do you respond in the face of evil? That's basically what God is providing Abraham the test for. So then, Abraham, because his heart has been shaped by meditating on this gracious God, we step here into verses 22 to 26. And I'm just going to read verses 22 to 26 because the rest of it kind of continues on from there and we'll talk about it. So the men turned from there and went down towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the, pl- that, the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I want to pause there. And I just want us to reflect. What is, as we have asked this question, what do you do in the face of great evil? Can you help me think through this? Where is Abraham's heart? What is he thinking? What is his reasons that he's concerned here? People who don't deserve to be judged are going to be wiped out, right? Isn't that a fascinating orientation here? Certainly Abraham 
would have heard how bad these bad people were. Yet his mind does not go towards right on God. Glass that place. <laughs> I want to see only the sheen of nuclear bombs having glassed all that desert. He doesn't go there. Where does his heart go? He goes towards, but God, even if there's just a few people there who follow you, are you really going to wipe them out too? I just want to draw off this conversation. Can I, I have a slide here with these. I think the next one over. Right? Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then what develops from there is basically this bartering relationship that happens. And bartering is not something that's common in our culture. I don't know if you've ever been visited or had friends from cultures where bartering is common. I had a friend of mine who uh, grew up in India who uh, would tell me about how he would go to Target and barter the uh, grills there down to a reasonable price. I'm like, bro, that's bold. Like, that's not... I'm like, whatever the price tag says is what the price is. And he would be like, well, it's already assembled. People have touched it. It's been opened and closed by so many times. You should be giving me, you know, and I'm like, I mean, that makes sense, but that's just not like, I'm just so programmed by our system to be like, you don't barter things down. Even more so, bro, he's talking to God. Like, <laughs> like I just find it fascinating that he is bartering with God to bring that number down. But that's basically what happens, right? Will you destroy it for 45? What about if it's just 40? Okay, well, upon reconsidering, don't get too angry with me. What if it's 30? All right, all right. Hear me out. Maybe it's just 20. What if it's just 10? Again, the answer continues to be, for their sake, I will not destroy it. Now, I, will find, it, I find it funny just to say, like, in my reading of the commentaries, they're all basically like, why does he stop at the number 10? And they're like, because that's the agreed upon number. <laughs> that's a great non-answer. But I don't know why it's 10. <laughs> but basically, Abraham is reflecting the heart of God and his care for justice, right? God will judge. Judgment does come. And it is not something to be messed around with or treated lightly. And yet... The judge of all the earth, the one who, verse 19, right, who loves righteousness and justice, where does his heart go in the priority of justice? Because we tend to think of justice as you get your licks for doing something wrong. God's heart of justice goes towards I want to preserve life. People who are following me, people who know my ways in one way or the other, even if it means that I delay the wrath that some deserve. Now, I don't think what Abraham has in mind in Sodom and Gomorrah is that there are a bunch of Yahweh followers down there. I think he just means there are people who are walking in God's ways in one way or the other the best they can, that are not doing the atrocities that are being kind of their reputation has. You'll find this interesting. I want to put up Matthew 5. You find this reflected 
in the Sermon on the Mount again. No surprise, Jesus probably meditated on Genesis when he was writing his sermon. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? And do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, it's fascinating to consider. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What do the sun and rain do? They give life. They preserve life. They generate life. And God is saying here, I give life and preserve life among people who follow me and people who don't. Is your heart so in tune with God that you will celebrate God's life even when it's among people that you think are unjust, that you think are people who are from Sodom and Gomorrah, so to speak? See, this is where we get into murky waters. We begin to want clarity and we want those and us, them, safe from us. And yet this becomes very murky, right? What are the areas where it just seems like in our life today that we are pushed by polarizing agendas or polarizing language to consider, well, those are the really evil people, but we're the decent people over here, right? We could start listing off a whole bunch of place, agendas, right? It, it can be any sort of thing that you hear on the news. I mean, we have up in the window here in the, the, the center here, we have a pride flag. We have any number of ways in which we could begin to say, that's those people, but we're certainly not. You know, those people. I think what Abraham's story drives us to ask Will we condemn completely people or agendas even if there are people in those spheres who are seeking to honor God? Or even people who are unaware that they're following God's ways and things that we think are dead wrong? How do we think about areas where people are just, we feel like, man, that's wrong-headed, but I know that they're trying to do good things. Will we join Abraham and think, how can we pray for their protection and usefulness in God's kingdom? Or will we just completely write them off? Back when we were preaching through First Peter, I appreciated that our Peter commented on, we think about individuals and people and we love them. We don't think about people as political parties and agendas. And that's what Abraham is doing here. You'll notice he is driving in on what if there are individuals here in this place that you're about to judge who actually are following you in one way or the other. God, won't you preserve their life to be useful for your purposes? Won't you protect that place even if it's just for them? Now, spoiler alert, Genesis 19 shows there weren't even 10. 
So it's not that God doesn't judge where there isn't appropriate justice. But the point is that Abraham's heart is to preserve and defend life even where it just seems like, yikes, like that's not generally following God's ways. Okay. Let me end with this. Potentially it's getting a little muddy or murky here. Or I provoked somebody with an illustration. I don't know. I want to I close by asking the question, why has God continued to have mercy upon Manchester? Why has God continued to have mercy upon Manchester, Concord, Londonderry, Derry, any of the areas around here, Goffstown, Hookset, even New Bedford, you know? <laughs> Sorry. New Bedford's done nothing wrong. Although they do have that weird, like, Air Force thing out there. I don't know what that's about, bro. There's some secret science stuff going on there that I don't know about. Anyhow, why has God continued to show mercy to those places, to our place? I've, I wonder if this passage does not ask us to consider that God has continued to show mercy to these places because he has people there who are following his ways, right? He doesn't blast those places. It's not the only reason, but he doesn't blast these places off the face of the earth like he eventually does with Sodom and Gomorrah. Because there are people who are seeking to honor him there. It may be that God has you where you work, in your family, whatever the, the difficult dynamics are, because he is seeking to give mercy and compassion and grace to those very areas. It may be that you are just like Abraham in this story, pointing out, God, there are people here who are really trying to do a good job. Can you please continue to give us mercy? Can you please continue to give us compassion? Would you give us grace and wisdom? Even if your coworkers or whoever it is does not follow God, they may actually be doing a good job at following God's, job, God, God's ways unintentionally. God continues to give mercy because his people are here and they are working for God's justice all over the place, spreading his life-giving promises all through our city. Let me end with this. The more we see how God, how our gracious God, how good he is to us, and how much he loves life-preserving work in our areas, the more we begin to see those things and prioritize them to allow them to shape our hearts, to give space for God to shape us like that, we cultivate a gracious heart to become more like God himself. And how we think about ourselves how we think about our families and lives together, how we think about the people around us. Let's pray. God, as we have looked at this story, would you help us to think rightly about ourselves and the world around us, that we are in fact people who are saved by your goodness towards us, your compassion towards us, that we might also seek your justice in prioritizing your life and mercy among other people. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.